This week at the Times Union, we took a look back at the anniversaries of major news events in the capital region's past. October 4th marked the 34th anniversary of the Snowy Crippler, a freak nor'easter that walloped the area and left 250,000 without power. That included the Times Union itself. A second anniversary came October 6th, marking three years since the tragic limousine crash in Schoharie County that killed 20 people. It remains one of the deadliest transportation accidents in New York's history. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. Many of these people have been bent morally and legally by Keith Raniere. We'll learn about why exit numbers on New York's highways are different from other states. In urban areas, it's harder to do mileage-based numbering because there are going to be five or six exits potentially within a one-mile stretch. And because it's Halloween season, we'll hear one of the region's most famous ghost stories. And you will see this 19th century funeral car zipping by in the middle of the night. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler to go over the top stories of the week. Let's start out with a little bit of a news brief on what happened at the state capitol this week. Or in the in the general realm of state politics, the big news, I think it's fairly safe to say, as we look ahead to uh, election 2022, is that Jay Jacobs, who um, is still the head of the state Democratic Party, came out on Monday and endorsed Governor Kathy Hochul for election to a full term next year. This comes as um, Jamani Williams, who is a fierce progressive um, out of New York City, announced his uh, intention to run for that office. And as Attorney General Letitia James goes around the state on what might be seen as a little bit of a a victory lap on uh, opioid funds that her office uh, secured from pharmaceutical companies. And it it feels very much to some people like it like it might be her putting the ball on the tee for um, her own gubernatorial run. She's been, you know, cagey and about not being definitive about whether or not she is or is not running. But Jacobs came out and said that um, Hochul's brand of moderate, uh, pragmatic leadership, even though she's only in office for six weeks or so, um, is exactly what the state needs. He also made a little bit of news when he was asked if he had called former Governor Cuomo to let him know about this endorsement. And Jay Jacobs, who for a long time was a very close ally and defender of the governor, even sort of into earlier this year when he was among those saying, hey, let's hold off. Let's not call for the governor to resign. Let's wait for the the investigation into sexual misconduct to play out. Now, it's worth noting that in the final weeks before the governor announced he was going to resign, 
Jay Jacobs kind of changed his stance and said, okay, after the AG's report came out, now it is, in fact, I can no longer uh, hold off saying that the governor needs to resign. All right. You can hit up the Capitol Confidential section of timesunion.com to get more on all those topics and everything New York State government and politics. Moving on to Nexium. It's kind of the end of an era this week after the final former Nexium member was sentenced. So can you tell us what happened? Yeah, Kathy Russell, who was a bookkeeper with Nexium, uh, is the final uh, of the federal defendants in you know the prosecution of Nexium, which goes back, gosh, four years now, to be sentenced. Uh, she pleaded guilty to visa fraud, and she's going to get two years of probation and two hundred hours of community service. She's sixty-three years old. She said that she, like many others can't believe how much she was gulled by Keith Raniere, the kind of guru of Nexium, you know, known within the organization as Vanguard. The judge actually described uh, Kathy Russell's case as a classic case study as to how a cult environment injures people, even as they engage in the improper activities of the cult. In other words, Russell was uh, something of a victim herself. That is, of course, a note that we've heard in a couple of the sentencings, that in addition to being culpable in these crimes, that many of these people had been bent morally and legally by Keith Raniere. Another bit of Nexium news that actually happened last week, but after we published the podcast, was that former Nexium member Danielle Roberts has lost her medical license. Now, she was the one who uh, branded the women in the secret society. So tell us what happened there. Yeah, Danielle Roberts, as noted, wielded the cauterizing implement that was used to brand this kind of uh, symbol that included Keith Raniere's uh, initials onto the women who were part of DOS, the, the master slave organization within Nexium. Her license was yanked, um, and that has now been upheld on appeal. Experts who testified on her behalf or other physicians who testified on her behalf said, oh no, she, was, she wasn't you know, doing the branding as a physician. She was doing it in uh, her role as I believe the, the phrase was a branding technician, which is a, you know, a phrase that you don't really see that often. Yeah, Roberts is clearly somebody who, uh, another individual who's paying the bill for uh, an unfortunate association with Nexium and with Ranieri. All right. For more on Nexium, check out our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial. You can go way back to the beginning. We've covered it all there. All right. Moving on to Rensselaer County, where the medical examiner there has refused to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Tell me, what are the consequences of that? It means Rensselaer County is going to have to ship its bodies far down to Dutchess County. Michael Sikorica, who was the well-known medical examiner uh, sort of at the center of this uh, controversy, is apparently refusing to get a COVID-19 vaccination, which means that he is closed out from a number of local and regional, even kind of multi-regional hospitals. Initially, the county said that he was still going to be allowed to operate out of Glens Falls Hospital, you know, which is half an hour, 45 minutes, depending upon what part of Rensselaer County you're talking about to ship bodies up there for Dr. Sikorica to uh, to take a look at them. 
But Glens Falls Hospital said, nope, not us. They are affiliated with Albany Medical Center, which um, uh, has, has made it clear that all people using their facilities have to get the vaccination. So now the county is, uh, is forced to go all the way down to Dutchess County to give uh, Dr. Sikorica, you know, facilities where, where he can do this work. And uh, obviously the leader of Rensselaer County, the county executive is Steve McLaughlin, who is an outspoken conservative. And uh, one gets the sense that McLaughlin's defense of Sikorica and saying, ah, oh, yeah, this isn't a big deal, has a certain um, political uh, valence to it. All right. One final topic to cover here, going back to Albany, the lights in the park. It's an annual holiday tradition. What is the story with that? Yeah, for more than two decades now, the Police Athletic League, or PAL, has uh, used um, a large chunk, sort of the southwestern corner of Washington Park for Capitol Lights in the Park. Cars line up. They, you know, wend their way through and look at these elaborate light displays. The display is the the primary fundraiser for PAL, um, which does, you know, good work throughout the Capitol region. But neighbors around Washington Park in a fairly large radius have grown frustrated by the way that the display tends to clog up traffic in their neighborhood that there's a lot of uh, idling cars, a lot of exhaust, and people have, have raised the concern that it's just for a park, which is supposed to be open to everybody, is supposed to be walkable, is this really the best use of it? The infrastructure for uh, Capital Lights in the Park really has to go in the end of October, the beginning of November. And so this year, um, the city of Albany and uh, Mayor Kathy Sheehan um, made it clear after last year's display closed down that she was not a fan and thought that it needed to move someplace else. The announcement was made that this, meaning the 2021 display, was going to be the last year and that it's going to have to find a new home. PAL, meanwhile, has um, has said that it's going to do uh, its very best this year to be the best neighbor it can. But for people in the neighborhood, definitely a win. Now we're all wondering where might it be next year. So that'll be something to watch out for. All right, Casey, thank you so much for joining us. We'll check back in with you next week. Jess, thanks a lot. As always, you can read more about all the stories and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Reporter Abigail Rubel tackles local transportation issues in a weekly column called Getting There. Recently, a reader submitted a very interesting question. Why does New York keep highway exit markers in numerical order rather than using mileage like other states do? I certainly wanted to know the answer to this, so I pulled Abigail aside to learn more. The question that you answered on a recent Getting There column is a question that I've had pretty much my entire life, um, which is, why do the exit numbers on New York State highways, why are they, you know, sequential numbers rather than mile markers, which is a common thing in other states? And Massachusetts, until recently, had been the same 
But then they just changed their exit markers to coincide with mileage. And that blew my mind. I mean, I've been traveling the Mass Pike my entire life. My mom's from Boston. So so it just completely blew my mind. So what's the deal? Right now in New York, most places it is still sequential. So uh, exit two isn't necessarily at mile two. Exit 23, not necessarily on mile 23. There are some exceptions I-84 got changed. The Taconic State Parkway now has mileage-based numbering. Uh, The Hutchinson River Parkway down in the city was just changed over the summer. But really, the reason why it hasn't been that way in New York from the beginning is because in urban areas, it's harder to do mileage-based numbering because there are going to be five or six exits potentially within a one-mile stretch. Right. So they'd all have the same number and then they'd have to be like an A, B, C, D kind of situation, right? Right. Or, you know, north, south, east, west. But but the primary goal, according to the Department of Transportation, is to not confuse motorists. I, I understand that. Um, that's a that's a pretty noble goal. But like, <laughs> why? Why are they suddenly changing some of them? A few years ago, the Federal Highway Administration uh, put out new and updated guidance that preferred mileage-based exit numbers, which was the method that most states used even before they started requiring it. Uh, and the reason they did that is because, you know, if you're not from the area, it's easy to know where you are, where the exit is. It helps with navigation, uh, distance to destination, you know, knowing how far you have before the next exit, and actually even assists with Uh, accurate emergency responses. There's no specific timeline for when the federal government is requiring states to switch over, but they are working with each state on a plan to eventually make that switch. And that's why you're starting to see some highways in New York um, switch over. Why did you tackle this topic recently? I mean, I know there was a question from a reader, but surely this question has been asked before. Honestly, this is the first time I've seen it in my inbox, um, at least phrased so broadly. Uh, And I was curious, like you, uh, I drive all over the place and I was on the Northway over the weekend and thought, it's so inconvenient that these are not mileage based, whereas on the Taconic, which I also drive a lot, they are mileage based and it makes the drive go a lot quicker. But on the Mass Pike, I would drive to Boston and now it's based on the mile markers rather than just sequential. And you see like little signs next to it being like, this is the old exit four, or this is the old exit six. Like the transition can't, it's not going to be easy for people. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they'll do as Massachusetts, as I've seen in Pennsylvania, have signs saying, you know, current exit, whatever, old exit 56. Um, That seems to be the way most people are doing. And I imagine that's what New York will do as well. I actually didn't know they changed the exit markers before I set out for a recent trip to Massachusetts. And boy, was I surprised. Let me tell you. It must have been really helpful to know what the old exits were. So tell me, what have you got coming up on some future getting there columns? Well, this coming Monday, um, we're going to have an answer to why the CD, the much vaunted CDTA e-scooter program has not yet been fully launched. And then I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks, a number of people have written to me about this. The sign where 87 and 90 split going south confuses many people. (laughs) They're especially out-of-towners. The Northway Thruway 
southbound interchange, which is a very high traffic area, people uh, get confused because they think there are two lanes going off towards 87, but there's only one lane. The other two lanes go uh, to 90. And a number of people have written in to me about that. So I'm hoping to get an answer uh, in the next couple of weeks. Yes, that route is familiar to me. That's how I get home from the Times Union every day. Yes, cool. much traveled, much traveled. And uh, if my inbox is any indication, also much complained about. So anybody who has a transportation question can just email you and hope for a response? Yep, the email uh, is getting there at timesunion.com. After the break. Are you ready for a scary story? We're going to hear one of the region's most famous supernatural tales. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. I don't know about you, but with Halloween just a few weeks away, I am in the mood for a good ghost story. So I reached out to Albany historian Maeve McEnany Johnson. She's the community engagement manager for Discover Albany, and she's led ghost tours around the region for more than a decade. I asked her to join us on the podcast this week to tell one of the region's most famous supernatural legends. Can you tell me a spooky story? Uh, yeah, I mean, how much time do we have? There's so many spooky stories in Albany. I thought we'd talk about Abraham Lincoln. I think that is an excellent topic. He is a well-known individual, and uh, it's a really cool tie to Albany. So without further ado, tell me the story. So Lincoln came to Albany in life and death, and some even say his afterlife as well. Uh, when he came to Albany, he was on his way to his inauguration in 1861, and he gave a speech. Uh, and at the same time, just coincidentally, uh, John Wilkes Booth was also in Albany, and he was performing a play called The Apostate at the Gaiety Theater. So while they didn't have an interaction, historians do think that Booth first laid eyes on Lincoln here in Albany. Wow, that's chilling. Very chilling. Well, especially, too, because then Lincoln, at the he gave a speech in Albany, and he went back to his hotel at the Delavan Hotel, where Ira Harris and his stepson, Henry Rathbone, and potentially his daughter, Clara Harris, they were there. We'll get to them in a, in a little bit. So you have this cast of characters who are on Broadway in Albany at the same time, because Booth was also staying at the Stanwix Hotel down the street. So we'll put a pin on that story. 
continue. Yes. Uh, So then when Lincoln was assassinated uh, in 1865, they repeated that same journey that he took. They reversed it when he was on his trip to his inauguration. Uh, They were bringing him back to be buried in Illinois. And he uh, stopped here in Albany in this funeral train. And people came from all over to pay their respects to Lincoln and the funeral train. The fascinating thing about this story is it's not just an Albany story. Uh, It's all along those old tracks. People have reported seeing the Lincoln funeral train. It is a national piece of folklore. Uh, And it's those traditional stories where, you know, you'll be out on an April night around midnight and suddenly it'll it'll suddenly get very very cold and you'll look up and you'll see a full moon and you'll look down and depending how old the story is your pocket watch has stopped but nowadays it would be your cell phone the battery just dies and if you are walking by the old tracks they'll illuminate Uh, and even if the tracks aren't there anymore which most of them are not they might reappear ghostly tracks and you will see this 19th century funeral car zipping by in the middle of the night. Some people say you can even catch it in the window. You might even see the coffin and two skeletons on either side watching over the coffin. Oh, that's creepy. That sends shivers down the spine. (laughs) But I want to go back to those other, that cast of characters who were uh, on Broadway on the same time, uh, February 18th, 1861. So I mentioned Henry Rathbone, Ira Harris, who was the senator, and Ira Harris had a daughter, Clara Harris. Ira Harris uh, remarried. He was widowed. uh, Henry's mother. Well, funny enough is Henry and Clara, the step-siblings, they fell in love and eventually they get engaged. Now, comes to that night in 1865, where the assassination occurs on April 14th, you know that sketch, right? If you think back to that sketch that you've seen of Lincoln and Mary Todd, and you have uh, Booth overhead with the gun, and there's another couple watching the play with the Lincolns. And that is Henry and Clara from Albany, the newly engaged couple. Wow. Mm -hmm. So Henry, uh, when this happened, he's a major Rathbone at this time. So he's a military man. He's strong. He tried to attack Booth. So he goes after Booth. Uh, He wrestles with him, but Booth pulled out uh, a Bowie knife and he slices Rathbone down the arm. It was a terrible wound. Rathbone did wrestle with him enough to kind of grab his pant leg. And that's when Booth goes over the edge and he breaks his leg, but he does escape. Now, Rathbone never seemed to really get over the fact that he couldn't thwart the president's assassin. Year after year, people would revisit the tragedy of Lincoln being assassinated, and Rathbone would have to relive this. So he marries Clara, and they have children, but he starts dipping deeper and deeper into this depression, and he he would have these fits of mania and fits of rage. So the family goes to Germany. Uh, And they tried to kind of resettle in Germany. But on Christmas Eve Eve in 1883, Rathbone was growing more and more jealous of his children and their relationship with Clara. And all of a sudden, in a fit of rage, he turns and he tries to kill the children. Clara gets between them and the husband, Rathbone, shoots Clara and stabs her. And then he tries he tries to turn the the knife on himself, but no, he he survives and he's committed to an insane asylum. 
So this is a grim story, but how also does it tie back to Albany? Well, there's a house in Loudonville called the Loudon Cottage, which still stands today on Cherry Tree Lane. This house is said to sometimes have the spirit of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, this was the summer home of uh, Clara Harris's family and Ira Harris. And the story goes is that when Lincoln was uh, shot, the blood got onto the dress. And Clara didn't want to throw the dress away, but would never want to wear it again. So she walled it into the home in Loudonville. And the very next year, she said she reported hearing the sound of like a rocking chair. And she woke up and saw the sad figure of Lincoln sort of looking over her. And so since then, that's been the various reports uh, of people claiming that they've seen Lincoln in that home in Cherry Tree Lane. That is a great story. And I just it's just amazing that connection between Albany and Lincoln and how powerful it is. And the fact that his ghost could still be kind of residing in Albany in a way. I mean, you must have told this story a million times, right? Yeah. I mean, we've been telling uh, ghost stories myself for over a decade now. Uh, I actually started the first ghost tour in Albany. I haven't found anyone who did it earlier, so I'm claiming that for now. We'll give it to you. (laughs) When did you first hear this story and why did it make such an impact on you? Yeah, you know, I've been being told been told local ghost stories since I was a child. Um, some people may know my my maiden name McEnany. My father's an Albany historian, so everywhere was a tour. And as a little kid, I would be like, "Ugh, no, history is boring." So he was smart enough to tell me ghost stories to get me engaged locally. So Lincoln is a national celebrity, right? And everybody, you know, as a child, we we almost deify Lincoln, uh, not only his role in the Civil War, uh, but also how he lost his life. So I heard that story, actually, it's grim, but probably as a child, uh, there's a book called uh, Henry and Clara that my, my father would talk about. And in fact, it caught my brother's imagination. He wrote a play called The Lincoln Dress, which was produced at Siena College uh, about two years ago before COVID. So to me, it haunted me. It stayed with me. It certainly haunted my brother who wrote a whole play about it, uh, which was pretty exciting. And then it's just the idea that a celebrity like Lincoln, and then you find all of these eerie ties. I mean, the fact that all of the people in that that theater that night in the booth with Lincoln were all on the same street in Albany at the same time, I think is just, it just sends a chill down your spine. And it, and it also tells you from a historical point of view, though, about how Albany was really the cent- a big center of politics like it is today. But even back then, you know, when Lincoln, when they were creating that itinerary, when he was on his way to his inauguration, stopping at the Capitol in Albany was essential. Absolutely. Yeah, that's powerful stuff right there. All right. So tell us more. So how can you find out more about taking a ghost tour with you this season and any season, really? Yeah. Uh, so Discover Albany, uh, I will do tours. Anytime you want a ghost tour, I'll do it. And especially in the wintertime, I can do virtual. If you go on albany.org, uh, you can learn about our programs. Uh, currently, my tour season, uh, I'll be doing the Sunday afternoons. It's called Erie Albany. Then I will be working with Historic Albany Foundation. We'll be doing the dark side of downtown Albany. Uh, and that is a, a tour written by Tim Varney. Uh, and it's quite fun. For those of you who love a true crime podcast, this is going to be the tour for you. And you can go on Historic Albany Foundation's website to learn more about that. Tis the season. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. 
We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Abigail Rubel, and Maeve McEnany-Johnson for their contribution to this episode. <laughs>